In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. This is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. I wonder if you've ever wondered what it would be like to meet God. Have you ever wondered? Well, you don't really need to wonder because the Bible records the story of lots of people who found themselves confronted with the presence of the one true living God. And we just heard one of them when the Lord revealed himself to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. It's printed out for you on page 43 from Isaiah chapter 6. So let's uh, notice a few things about Isaiah's experience, what it's like to meet the Lord. First, notice the sheer size of the vision. It's there in the very first verse, verse 1. The hem of the Lord's robe. The hem, you don't know what a hem is, I know. But the hem is the bit, the edging bit, where they fold it over and sew it together. Just the hem of the Lord's robe. Just the hem filled the whole temple. And the temple was a large building. This is a huge throne that we're talking about. The Lord is sitting on this mighty throne. But the emphasis in the vision is actually not on the Lord's bigness. The emphasis is on his holiness. The angelic beings surrounding him call to each other, verse 3, you see it there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That threefold repetition is significant. The Lord is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Now, that word holy just means set apart, separated, separated and special. It's not just regular, run-of-the-mill. So what does it look like to say, what does it mean to say that God is holy? Well, Isaiah is pretty clear, actually, on the implication of God's holiness for himself. Because God is holy, Isaiah is a goner. Have a look there at verse 5. And I said, woe is me, I am lost, not meaning I don't know where I am, (laughs) meaning I'm a dead man, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, 
Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm dead. Isaiah knows it's his uncleanness that is a problem. How can the unholy come into the presence of the holy and still live? What God's holiness will do to him, what it ought to do to him, is destroy him. So that raises a bit of a key problem, actually, that we all have. How can any unholy person like me or you or Isaiah, how can we come into the presence of this holy God whose eyes, as we learn in Habakkuk chapter 2, his eyes, we're told, are too pure to look on evil. How can we then walk into his presence? But then here's the most wonderful thing. Here's the truth about God and his holiness that, friends, we will sing this truth for all eternity. God's holiness is also seen in what he, what he actually does for Isaiah. Instead of destroying, God shows grace, undeserved kindness. He shows mercy and he cleanses Isaiah from his sin. Have a look again at verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed. Your sin is blotted out. How beautiful is that? All of Isaiah's failings, all of Isaiah's sins and guilt before God... All of it taken away, blotted out by the Holy God. And we know, which Isaiah didn't, we know from what God has revealed in Jesus that where Isaiah's sins went was to the cross of Jesus. That's where God in his holiness condemned Isaiah's sin. And that's where God has condemned mine. And yours, in Jesus and his death on the cross. That's why God can justly blot out Isaiah's sin. That's why he can justly blot out your sin and mine. But actually, the very fact that this is what God does for sinners, that instead of condemning us, he forgives us in Christ when we turn to him, the very fact that this is what God does for sinners... That also sets God apart. That also marks him out as holy, different, special. So according to the Bible, this is a key part of understanding who God is, that he is holy, holy, holy. So what we're going to do tonight is to dig down into God's word to understand his holiness. Not just to understand it, because as for Isaiah, God's holiness is key in how he relates to us. And how we're to relate to him. So why don't I lead us in prayer as we get into page 43. Please, Heavenly Father, help us to see you more clearly tonight through your word in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we might know your holiness and that we might live as your holy people. Amen. Okay, halfway down, page 43, God's holiness revealed. 
you can see how Colin Gunton there on the page, who unfortunately does look a bit like Papa Smurf. <laughs> you can see how he summarizes what it means in the Bible when God is called holy. He says there, in the holiness of God is encompassed a range of concepts which spell out the kind of God with whom we are to do. And then he lists three things. Otherness from the world as its creator. That is, God is set apart from everything else because he's the creator and everything else is the stuff he's made. Then secondly, he says, purity as its redeemer and judge. That is, God is set apart from us because he's without sin. He can't look on evil. He said that makes him holy, separate to us. But also holiness, he says, as the consistency between God's being and action. That is, unlike you and me, God always acts consistently with who he is. As a Christian, see, God has set me free from slavery to sin. But I, every day, I so easily slip back into sinful ways. There's just not a consistency all the time between who I am and how I behave. God is thoroughly and always consistent in who he is and how he acts. And that actually sets him apart from us. He's holy in that way. Now, I actually think we're much more used to thinking of God's holiness just in terms of maybe his purity. When we think God is holy, we're used to thinking of the way God judges sin. And that's right. That was Isaiah's conclusion too, wasn't it? Woe is me, because I've seen the Lord. He thought he was a goner. And there at the bottom of page 43, you can see a few other places where that side of God's holiness is very clear in the scriptures. I've given you some examples you can look up later. One from the Old Testament. Nadab and Abihu, who we looked at at EU public meetings in first semester from Leviticus chapter 9. And another example from the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. But as we saw in the example of Isaiah, God also shows his holiness by being merciful. So if you turn over the page then as to page 44, you can see what the Lord says in Hosea chapter 11 verses 8 and 9. The Lord says there, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God is not like us. He responds to the sins of his people with mercy. He chooses to not execute his anger and to not come in wrath. And even more, in his holiness, he chooses to come and embrace us in our rebellion, even while we're enemies, as we saw last night. You see there how John Webster put it on the right-hand side of your page as he reflects on this truth. He says, The holiness of God is not to be identified 
simply as that which distances God from us. Rather, God is holy precisely as the one who in majesty and freedom and sovereign power bends down to us in mercy. That's what sets God apart from us. That's what makes him holy, that he bends down to us sinners in mercy. Who does that? Who shows mercy to the undeserving, embraces the enemy? Only God, the loving and holy God. So how do we bring these two parts of God's holiness together? How do we bring together the fact that God's holiness means he pursues justice, but it also means that he pursues mercy? Are there two separate goals here that he has to sort of weigh up? Justice on the one hand from his holiness and mercy from his holiness. Does he have to sort of play them off against each other? No, there's not actually two separate goals here. God has one goal. And his execution of justice and his showing of mercy are both means of achieving this one goal. What's the one goal that he has? Well, John Webster, again, helps us to understand this. It's there on your page under point two. God's holy pursuit of his good purpose. Uh, God's holiness, he says, is the undeflected purposivedness which is not a word, but it's a good vibe. It's God's, God's holiness is his undeflective purposiveness, his determination, his, his heading towards a particular goal with which God ensures that his will for humankind will not be spoiled by wickedness as the Holy One. The triune God is at work to ensure that the end, that is the goal of the human creature, what we have called righteous fellowship with God, that goal will be attained and sin will not be allowed to lead to the creature's ruin and destruction. He goes on. The unholy, what's unholy, is the absurd affair in which the creature seeks to be a creature in a way other than that which is purposed by God. It's therefore a way in which the creature, precisely by trying to cease to be a creature and to make itself, seeks actually to destroy itself. To this unholiness, the holiness of God is implacably opposed. And so he goes on. God's holiness destroys wickedness for the same reason that we human beings destroy disease. Because it attacks the creature's flourishing and it's opposed to our well-being. And just as as the goal of the eradication of disease is health, so the end of the eradication of unholiness is the creature's consecration. That is the creature's wholesome life in righteous fellowship with God. See, one of the things that sets God apart, that's part of his holiness, is his utter determination to achieve his goal. And that goal is to establish right relationship with us as his creatures. He wants us to be in right fellowship 
with him. And so because that's his goal, he judges sin because sin cuts us off from him and sin destroys us. And he doesn't want that. So he judges sin and he shows us mercy because that's the only way that we can live in his wonderful presence. So what we're going to do now is see how God pursues this goal of fellowship with us, how he's pursued it through history. We're going to do sort of a flying trip through the scriptures. It starts there at the bottom of page 44. The story starts with fellowship broken, Genesis chapter 3. You might know the story, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. The Lord says, don't eat from this particular tree. And they do. They disobey his good command. They eat from the tree. After they eat from the tree, God sends them out of the garden the garden that God had created for them and in which they had enjoyed fellowship in his presence. And you can see there from Genesis 3 on your page, verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent the man forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, an angelic being, with a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. I don't know. I have not watched, you know, the Bible miniseries, a big thing on TV, apparently. I've not watched it. I don't know whether it's good or bad or whatever. All I know is the people who talk to me about it tend to be blokes who say, those Asian ninja angels are awesome. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I can't say any more than that. I don't know. I'm just telling you. But I do imagine if you've got some sword-wielding angel, as you read here, some sword-wielding angel standing there, it's pretty clear that you going back into the garden, you trying to restore fellowship with God, no matter how good your ninja skills, probably not going to happen. If fellowship is going to be restored, it's going to have to come from God's side. And precisely because God is love, he does want to restore relationship with us. He does want us to live in his presence with all the blessings that that brings. So how's God going to do it? We can't get past that sword-wielding angel. We can't get back to him. So he comes to us. He comes to dwell amongst us. Point B, a holy nation amongst whom God will dwell. Fast forward then to the Israelites, their slaves in Egypt. The Lord shows them he is the true God. How does he do? He shows that by redeeming them, rescuing them out of that slavery. He brings them to Mount Sinai where he's chosen to meet with them. The Lord comes down in a cloud. Hence that beautiful little diagram I did there on my computer for you. The Lord comes down in a cloud to meet with them. And this is what he says, Exodus Verse 9, chapter 19, verse 4. These are very important verses for understanding God's purposes right through human history, these verses. He says to them, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me 
a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. God chooses them to be his holy nation. A nation set apart from every other nation by their relationship with him as the true and living God. And astoundingly, this God, the living God, is going to come and live amongst them. Have a look at the promise God makes there on your page to Moses in Exodus 29. He says, I will meet with you at the tent of meeting to speak to you there. I will meet with the Israelites there and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Sanctified and consecrate both mean holy, right? I will sanctify it by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See, it wasn't an afterthought of God to set up camp in the middle of the Israelites. His very purpose in rescuing them out of Egypt, according to verse 40 there, was so that he might live amongst them. His purpose was to restore fellowship with his creatures so that they could live in his presence with all the blessings that come from that. But you remember Isaiah, right? The unholy can't survive in the presence of the holy God, not without being destroyed. So God has to give them this warning there on your page, Leviticus 15 verse 31. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness so that they do not die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle, my tent that is in their midst. See, to live in the presence of the holy God means you have to take your holiness seriously. And God helped the Israelites to learn that by distinguishing certain things as clean. He said, I want you to regard these things as clean and these things as unclean. And when any Israelite was unclean, they were to stay away from the tabernacle, from the holy presence of the Lord. It was to teach them that holiness really does matter if you're to live in God's presence. So interestingly there, you notice God's holy people, being God's holy people was something that God did to them. He made them his holy people and it was also something they did in response they kept themselves holy. And you can see both of them there in the next verse there, Leviticus 20, 7 and 8. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and observe them. I am the Lord, I sanctify you. Now we've been looking at Leviticus on and off at EU public meetings uh, this year, and if you've missed out, all the PMs from first semester are on the EU podcast And we're going to get back into Leviticus at the the back end of second semester. I think the last six weeks of semester, we're going to continue to finish off looking at the book of Leviticus. Um, If you've been coming along to those, then hopefully you've learned a few things about the book of Leviticus and more so about the Lord God and His Son, Jesus Christ. You've also learned that I have no respect for the English language. 
And I'm very happy to mangle it at will if I feel like it communicates a point. Those words there in those verses from Leviticus 20, consecrate and sanctify, as I said before, they all come from this same root word for holy. So the verses, I think, would be a bit clearer if we actually rendered them, holyfy yourself, therefore, and be holy. For I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and observe them. I am the Lord. I holyfy you. Holification, just while I'm on a thing, Holification is something that God does to us. I am the Lord, I holify you. And it's something he asks us to do as well. Holify yourselves therefore and be holy. Now you remember Isaiah's experience, it's the Lord who takes away his sin, who makes him holy. But it requires our responsible participation in response. We holify ourselves and be holy because he's made us holy. And yet, as we mentioned last night, Israel trying to holify themselves, that was a national disaster in history. They just were unable to do it. They didn't keep God's commands. They refused to be his holy people, even though that's the people he'd made them to be. Which brings us to point C, a new holy people in Christ Jesus. How did God take away Isaiah's sin? How does he holify the Israelites? How does he take away our sins? As we said earlier, we know where he does that. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He deals with them at the cross of Jesus. Jesus takes our sins upon his shoulders. He takes our guilt and our shame and he goes to the cross and there he takes the punishment that was ours. So in great love, he satisfies justice. And so as you and I, as we attach ourselves to Jesus by faith, we are made holy. Our sins are blotted out. It's just like God says to you, as he says to Isaiah, if you're in Christ Jesus, then your guilt has departed. Your sin is blotted out. See how the writer to the Hebrews puts it there on your page, Hebrews 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So as a result of God holifying us through Jesus' death and through our faith in him, the promises God made to the old nation of Israel are now actually true for Christians We have become, in Jesus, God's new holy people. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 9, Peter's writing to a bunch of Christians, but he takes those very important verses from Exodus 19, which were said to the Israelites, he takes those same verses and says, actually, it's true of you if you're in Jesus. He says there, but you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim his mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just as we're going on the way through, notice there, it's not just he's made you into his holy people so that you can just rest in his blessing. 
He wants you to experience his blessing, but it's so that you might proclaim his goodness. We proclaim not ourselves, we proclaim God and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what the Your God mission is on about. It's not about you. <laughs> it's about him. And he's made you part of his holy people to proclaim the marvellous acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. That's what your God mission is about. That's what mission gangs are about. That's what the Andrew and Sarah are doing in Italy. That's what we try to do on the campus. We proclaim the mighty deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. So we noticed that that was just sort of on the way through there. You notice here that it's who's the holy nation? It's those who have attached themselves to Jesus. Now remember back when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember he brought them out of Egypt and he set up camp in the middle of them. Okay, so we're now God's holy people. Praise be to God for that mercy. We're his holy people. Here we are, right? God's holy people. Where's God? Well, I don't see his tent set up amongst us. Where is he? Where's his presence if we're now the holy people of God? Well, guess what? He has taken up residence amongst us by his spirit. Look at the bottom of page 45 there from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know, says Paul, that yous... I'm sorry I told you, I have no respect for the English language. Use, that is used together, one big group, used together are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in use. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy. There's that key word yet again. And used together are that temple. So together we are the place where God, the Spirit, dwells. Not just together, also individually. If you've put your trust in Jesus, then God, the Spirit, has come to dwell in you. Over the page, top of page 46, same, same letter Paul wrote, a bit later, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks to individual Christians this time. And says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? And consequently, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Okay, so I have two little quizzes for you, just to sort of keep you on your toes at this point. You see the diagram there towards the top of page 46? Okay, now, this diagram is meant to, it's meant to trace out God's presence with his people through history, which is what we've been talking about. Something is wrong with the diagram. It's not the fault of those who put together the booklet. They did an awesome job. There is a mistake from me in the diagram. I want you to talk with the person next to you and see if you can work out 
what's wrong with this diagram? And don't be smart and tell me, oh, the font really stinks, right? (laughs) It's not the font, right? What's really wrong with that diagram? And how would you fix it? You have one minute. What's wrong with the diagram? Oh, this is crazy. You know, Q and A, like, with, anyway, what's wrong with the diagram? No, Jesus! <laughs> who, who is Jesus? John chapter 1. Who is Jesus? John chapter 1. The Word who was God came down from heaven and, and literally, John says, tabernacled lived among us. So we want to trace out God's presence amongst his people when God himself, God the eternal word, takes on flesh and comes among us. That's the climax of of God dwelling amongst his people, isn't it? And the reason that we Together and individually, the reason that we are, te- are a temple of God's Spirit is because we're united to Jesus by that Spirit, through faith. So we need to change the diagram a bit, and I'm sure you'll work out a good way to do that. I'm going to leave that to you. Okay, time for the second quiz. I said there were two. Second quiz. I want to introduce you to my two friends, the two whistling ladies. So um, you can see them there on the page. Given what I've already talked about tonight, about being God's holy people, which one of the two whistling ladies explains why Christians are holy? So you see the lady on the left, to that lady on the left, God says, you are holy. And so as a result, the lady says, okay, I am pure and blameless. The lady on the right, to the lady on the right, God says, I will make you holy. To which the second lady says, with your help, I will become pure and blameless. And as a result of God helping her, God then says, you are holy. Which one is right? You've got one minute to discuss with the person next to you, which is right and why? All right, who said, my friend, Whistling lady on the left. Who said that? I thought she had more going for you, going for it than that, actually. Um, Who said whistling lady on the right? (laughs) Who tried to be clever and said, neither, I reject the very premise of the choice. Blah, 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 blah. The right answer, according to the Bible, is both. So let's, let's think about that for a moment. Let's, let's think about that together for a moment. I'm sure you're all going to rip holes in me at question time. That's okay. That's, that's fun. Okay. 
The truth on the left-hand side is that in Christ, God declares us to be holy, like what he did with Isaiah. He takes away all our sin through Jesus' death, and so he says to us, you are pure and blameless. And if God says it, it's true. It's not a fiction. It's not an empty wish. There's no condemnation for you because Jesus has died for you. You're completely forgiven. You are pure and blameless. Friend, if you have put your trust in Jesus, that's who you are. And you say, oh, but all the sins that I've done and all the guilt. That's why Jesus died. To bear your guilt and shame and punishment. So you are pure and blameless. You say, but I, I don't deserve that. Yes, it's grace. God's glorious grace. But it's also true that God is working in us by his spirit to make us more holy. To make us more like Jesus in our character, in our convictions, our passions, our priorities. And yes, on that final day when Jesus returns and we're all transformed, we will be completely free of sin. The perfected, holy people of God. So both are true and both are really important because if you focus just on the right-hand picture, you'll forget that you are actually holy now. You'll think that you're not acceptable to God because no matter how much you try, even with God's help, you still struggle with sin. And so you'll say, I'm not holy. And then you'll doubt whether God can really accept you. And that's because you've forgotten the death of Jesus. You've forgotten the first whistling lady. Jesus died for you. And so even though you struggle with it, you are pure and blameless. Because all your sin went to the cross with Jesus. But, but you'll also get into a mess if you focus just on the left-hand picture. Because then you'll forget that God wants to grow you more like Jesus. He wants you to grow in faith and obedience and holiness. And so you'll start to think that sin in your life doesn't matter because, hey, God's already declared me to be holy and pure and blameless. So you'll just, you'll be casual about sin. You won't really care about sin. You'll get slack when it comes to obeying God. And you've forgotten that truth that we saw last night, that genuine faith in God always flowers into obedience. So you need to make sure you remember both the whistling ladies. God has made you holy through Jesus. And now he's at work in you to make you holy like Jesus. Now we've got a little bit sidetracked, hopefully helpfully there, but we got a bit sidetracked from our tour through God making a holy people because we stopped short of the final stop, the final step. Point D on page 46, God's holy people have a great future. I did mention just a second ago with that second whistling lady, the holy God's plan from the beginning was to dwell with his people, with his holy people. And the Bible gives us a beautiful glimpse of that future in Revelation 21. John's given a vision by Jesus, by the risen Jesus, of the future. 
And John writes down, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Now, you need to know that in that picture there, the city, Jerusalem, is being used in this vision to represent God's people. It's God's people who've been prepared by God himself as a beautiful bride adorned for her husband. The husband in this picture is Jesus himself, the church, God's people, have been made beautiful for Jesus. And he goes on. And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. God finally fulfills, right, the history-long plan to dwell with his people in a perfected creation. No more mourning, crying, pain, no more death, no more sin. God's people living in his new and perfected creation in his very presence. Very wise man, talking on this verse once, I heard him say, preach on this verse and he, he, this passage and he said, you know the only thing that God's people bring on that final day? The only thing we bring? Our tears. In that picture, that's the only thing we bring, our tears. And what does God do? He wipes them away. When my kids are crying, and tears running down their face. That's what you do. You just, just wipe it away. And that's what God will do. All our tears. He wipes them away. No more mourning. No more dying. No more pain. No more crying. No more sin. That is the sure end to which God is taking all things, that is the sure future for all who put their trust in Jesus. What a great story. And you're in it. This isn't just a nice story to tell. This is the story we're in. This is the story that God is taking us in, at which he's already at work in us, bringing about its completion. So how are we going to respond to these things? What are we meant to do about it? Is there any practical thing then we can do knowing all this stuff? Absolutely there is. Halfway down the next page, page 47. Worshipping our holy God. Now there's a great passage here from 1 Peter chapter 1 that I'm using as a framework. I'm using this as a framework because I think it really helpfully sets out for us what it means to live as God's holy people. It's not just a list of things to do and things to not do. I think it's actually even more helpful than that. Because there's lots of um, help, really helpful places in the Bible that tell you, you know, this is what it means to live a holy life. There's 
lots of lists, things that for you to go, right, that's what I need to do. Put, do these things, put off these things. It's, it's really important. It's really helpful. But sometimes when you're just confronted with a list, you can sort of go, oh. And that's because you've forgotten important realities at that point, And you're just looking at lists. So we could go through lots of lists tonight, and I've decided not to do that. In your review group tomorrow, you'll look at some of the, the, the detail things of particular things that you can put on, put off to be God's holy people. I want to help you get your mind right. Because I think, I think that I'm praying that under God that would have a lasting impact as you seek to follow Jesus. So I've broken this passage from 1 Peter chapter 1 down into three paragraphs. And because each paragraph highlights a particular part of being God's holy people, I've then tried to put it all into a diagram at the bottom of the page, which drives some of you nuts and some of you quite appreciate. Anyway, I'm telling you the different types of lines in the diagram. There's the solid line, the dotted line, and the dashed line. Those correspond to the... Three different paragraphs. They match up. You see how next to the paragraphs there's a solid line, a dotted line, a dashed line. Okay? Let's see how we go. Peter starts. Therefore, he says, prepare your minds. That's why I'm focusing on the mind here, right? Prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Okay? So in the diagram, the solid line represents that paragraph. You can see... Oh, look, I've actually got it here. One I prepared earlier. Hopefully that will come up on the uh, screen up there and you'll be able to see it. Right, all right? Uh, The the, uh, solid line there is to represent the grace that will be revealed to us, or will be given to us, when Jesus Christ is revealed. Because he says there, set your hope on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. In the diagram, you can tell which is Jesus, right? He's got the big J on his shirt, and he's in that bright, shiny explosion. (laughs) That's him being revealed. When Jesus is revealed, we'll receive grace. Now, that grace is what we looked at just a moment ago. It's that great future when God makes all things new, including us, when we're finally perfected and transformed completely to be like Jesus. That's the grace, part of the grace to be given us. And we're to set our hope on that. We look forward to that day. That's the day you long for. Because, see, if you're doing that, if you're longing for that day, that will help you to get busy with holiness now. Setting your hope on that day prepares your mind for action. So let's pick up the second paragraph. He goes on. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. So yes, we're to be holy, but do you see the framework, the way of thinking that he gives you there to motivate you to holiness? 
It's right there in the first three words of that paragraph. Like obedient children. We're children of a holy heavenly father. See, this is all about our identity. This is who we are now. We used to live, he says, in ignorance. We lived following all sorts of ungodly desires. But now we're God's children in Christ. And he says to us, my children, be holy as I'm holy. And so the response we have is obedience. We're obedient to that command because we know who he's made us to be. We're the holy children of the holy God. So you want to draw that on your diagram. You can see there our new identity is that we are children in Christ. We've come out of our former ways. We are now children of God, children in Christ, and we respond with obedience to our Father who says, be holy because I'm holy. And then the final paragraph, verse 17. If you invoke as Father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. So the mindset here is that we know that the Father's plan is that Jesus will judge all people. And so we live our life in reverent fear. That's the dashed line in the picture, right? Now we're going to explore exactly what it means to live in reverent fear in just a moment. But you can see that dashed line on the diagram. When Jesus is revealed, he'll be revealed as judge of all, the living and the dead. So the right response is to live your life in appropriate, reverent fear of that judgment. So what I think then we're getting in this passage, if we put it all together, are three three helpful aspects to thinking about getting your mind ready to live as God's holy person in Christ. We're to look to the future and set our hope on the final transformation God will make in us when Jesus is revealed. We're to remember our identity in Christ as children of a holy father and we're to live obediently as a result of that. And we know that the future judgment of God is coming. And so we live with appropriate reverent fear. Put all those things together, it prepares your mind for action. Now I hear Christians telling me all the time, it is so hard to be holy. I feel stuck in my sin. Nothing seems to change. So I wonder if you feel like that sometimes. Now when we think about it, God has made us holy in Jesus. We are pure and blameless. He's put His Spirit in us to help us grow in holiness. So at some level you sort of say, I wonder what the real problem is. (laughs) He's made me holy. He set me free from slavery to sin. He's put his spirit within me. I have his word. I have the encouragement of his people. What's, why why am I not moving forward here? I wonder if the problem is that we forget the sort of stuff that 1 Peter 1 tells us here. We haven't prepared our minds 
for the action of living a holy life. We forget the future grace that will be ours when Jesus is revealed. We forget our identity in Christ as holy children of a holy God. We forget the coming judgment when Jesus returns. We forget all those things and the energy drops out of the bottom of our holiness. These things are meant to shape you, to remind you of who you are in Christ, to remind you of what God has done and what he will do. And when you remember these things, your mind is prepared for some holiness action. Now, of all the three things that we've just identified there in the passage, I think the one that is least understood is what it means as a Christian to have a reverent fear of God. So if you just turn over the page to page 48, I want to spend a few moments just trying to make that one a bit clearer. If we go all the way back to Mount Sinai, when God appeared to all the Israelites, he came down from the mountain to speak with them in thunder and lightning and cloud. And you see how it's described there on your page from Exodus 20. When all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, they were afraid and they trembled and they stood at a distance And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you, so that you do not sin. So they're terrified. Moses says, don't be afraid. That is, you don't need to be absolutely terrified. You haven't done anything wrong yet. You're not in any... He means that you're not in any danger. At the moment, we've just, we've just come to the mountain exactly as God has told us to do. There's no need to be afraid here. They didn't need to worry that something bad was going to happen to them. What God was doing was revealing his might and his power and his incredible glory and holiness through the amazing sound and light show so that they might have an appropriate reverent fear of him, that they'd be suitably respectful. Why did God reveal himself like that to them? So that you will not sin. It's a right fear of God, a right acknowledgement that he is the one who judges. And when you remember that, it helps you not to sin. Uh, I, I've debated long and hard about telling this story. So I want you to be careful with this story because if you take only this story and say, that's who Rowan said God is like, you're going to misrepresent me, you'll misrepresent the Bible, and worst of all, you will misrepresent God. Okay? So don't take this. This is not the only thing. I'm trying to illustrate just this point, right, with this story. I grew up in the outer western suburbs of Sydney and I went to a a pretty rough high school. Um, And, you know, I can tell you many fantastically awful stories, which are pretty fantastic, um, about my schooling, right? About this. um, But you know what? Going to a, a rough public school as a Christian, and my parents were Christian, and lots of people said to them, what are you doing? How can you possibly do that? Um you know what? You know what? God is faithful. God is faithful. I learned how to be a Christian in a really real way. And overall, it was was good. It was a good, refining, maturing experience. 
But uh, the story goes like this. Uh, at the beginning of year eight, we have a new science teacher. Happens to be the new head teacher of science for the school. Brand new to the school. He'd just been appointed. And he, let me say, he was a good teacher. We learned stuff. And that's no small thing to say in the particular school I went to, right? <laughs> he was a good teacher. But this is how he started the very first lesson of the year. He walked in. And I'm going to show my age, but you'll get it. And he walked in. And he carries with him two canes, days of corporal punishment. Uh, he walks in with carrying two canes, a thick one and a thin one. And this is what he said. He said, this one's bruiser, this one's stinger. I let you choose. That's all he said. That was it. And then we got on and we learnt science. <laughs> we had no reason to be afraid of him. We didn't. We had no reason to be afraid of him. We knew clearly where the boundaries lay. But he did that so that we would have a right, respectful fear of his judgments. So that we would not step over the boundaries that he had set. The analogy is far, far from, you know, complete, right? But something like that is going on at Mount Sinai. God's people are not to be afraid of him, but they are to fear him so that they won't sin. Fear his right judgments. The Bible's very clear that that sort of fear of God is a good thing. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and notice the next part of the verse, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, talking about my science teacher and fearing the judgment of God can make God sound like a very scary God. And we are meant to be, have this right fear of Him, but we've got to hold it together with everything else we know about God, that He's loving, that He's good. And there's a lovely passage in C.S. Lewis' uh, Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, which I think captures it. Um, the children in this story, if you know the story, uh, are in the fictional land of Narnia. They're hearing about Aslan, the great lion who's in charge of Narnia and the whole entire world. They happen to be hearing about Aslan from some talking beavers. I just thought I'd get that out first before we came across it in the... Anyway, all right. All right, so you, you got yourself in the right place to hear this. Okay, I think this is, this is, very, this is very helpful and insightful of C.S. Lewis, I think, at this point. They've just heard about Aslan, that he's a lion. Ooh, said Susan. Come on. Okay, if you weren't here at Ancon, I wasn't going to mention this, but Ancon last year, I tried to read out, I tried to read out something from the Narnia Chronicles, and it just destroyed the evening. <laughs> but this is good, right? Ooh, said Susan. I'd, have a look, I'd thought Aslan was a man. 
Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God's not safe like some tame pet. He's not domesticated. You can't just wander into God's presence any old way. What did Isaiah say? Woe is me, for I've seen the Lord. But he is good. He's trustworthy. He keeps his word. When he says, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are pure and blameless in my sight. Then he absolutely means it. So we have no reason to be afraid of him like he might suddenly change his mind, like he might suddenly spring something else on us. No, he's good. We can trust him. We have a reverent fear of him, a respect for his judgment. And that motivates us to walk in holiness. But in Christ, we have no need to be afraid. Well, what about us? The writer to the Hebrews uses the example of the Israelites at Mount Sinai, which we've looked at, to encourage us as Christians in Christ to pursue holiness. Listen to how it's put in Hebrews 12. He says, unlike the Israelites, you have not come to something that can be touched, right? They are at a physical Mount Sinai. You can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, Christians, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So see that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. For if they did not escape, when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. How does this all affect us? Verse 25, don't reject what God says to us about how we should be living as his people. Instead, knowing knowing that he's made us part of Jesus' kingdom, 
that will last forever, we give him thanks and we live with reverence and awe. For he is a consuming fire. But remember too, it's God himself who's taken up residence in you by his spirit to help you live for him. And uh, Paul makes the point in Philippians 2 that even that makes us, gives us pause. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I could talk more about hope and holiness and identity and holiness, but I'm going to skip over those. I've already talked about those, actually, because all three of these things, fear, hope and identity, all came from that passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. So you can dig down into those, into your review group tomorrow. But having explored all the motivation for holiness, we do need to just stop and pause for a moment and just Just ask, I need to ask, I ask myself and you, if we call ourselves Christians, are there areas of our lives in which we know that we're not living a holy life? Now you'll get an opportunity tomorrow in review group to think through different practical ways we could grow in holiness, but just right now, since we've been talking about being God's holy people, you living a holy life. I just wonder if God has been encouraging you to address some part of your life. What's that first thing that springs into your mind? No one else may know about it, but it's clear as the nose on your face to you. When you think of your life, what's that part of unholiness that you need to bring to God and deal with? Maybe it's a relationship that's gone too far. Maybe it's a relationship in which you don't want to treat them as you know God wants you to. Maybe it's some part of your thought life, jealousy, hatred, lust. Maybe it's part of your speech, the type of language you use, jokes you tell, ways you speak about people behind their back. Maybe you fail to love somebody. Maybe there's a part of your life you're not willing to submit to God, your ambition, your career, your greed, your comfort. Whatever, whatever, friend, whatever's there in your mind, whatever it is that the Lord is bringing to your attention, I want you right now, write it down. Just turn a corner of the page somewhere, write it down. While it's in your mind. Everybody... Write something down. Friend, I want you to bring that to God. I want you to confess it. Receive his forgiveness and resolve in the power of his spirit within you. Put it to death. Live for him in holiness.
do you know what God does in Jesus with that sin that you've written down? What does he do? What did he say to Isaiah? Your sin is blotted out. So you know what you need to do now? You need to scrub it out. Because that's what God's going to do in Christ, isn't it? When you bring that to him. He's going he's to blot out that sin. It's gone. It went to the cross. And in the power of the Spirit within you, you get to live a new life in Christ. As you put that sin to death. Bring it to God. Confess it. And when you pray that prayer, when you confess it, and you ask for his help, make sure you go back and scrubble it out. Okay, so as we finish, I do want you to have confidence in the Holy Fying One. Page 50 in your book. As we saw in the Philippians 2 passage, which I've printed out again for you, this growing in holiness is not beyond you because God himself is at work within you. It says it there in verse 13. He's enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Holiness is not beyond you because God is in you to do it. So have confidence. God's given you all you need to grow in holiness, no matter what the temptation and struggle. What's more, he promises to get you there in the end. 1 Corinthians 1. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no doubt here. As you press on in Jesus, he will strengthen you to the end and you'll be blameless on the final day. We know it because God's faithful and he keeps his promise. So I'm going to finish by leading us in prayer and pray that God will do just that. Let's pray. I pray as the Apostle Paul prayed for the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Heavenly Father, we pray that you may so strengthen our hearts in holiness that we may be blameless before you at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. In his name and in the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.